Good evening. Good to see y'all. Um, I know some of you, so it's good to see some familiar faces, and it's good to uh, see ones that I don't know. This is always a fun event for me, and it's my third year to do it, even though this has been our fourth year together. Um, so I'm glad we can do this together. If you have a Bible with you, uh, I would invite you to turn to Psalm 63. If you don't, that's going to be okay, because look at this enormous screen up there for you to follow along with. But for those of you that do have Bibles and want to follow along, uh, as you're turning there, I just want to ask you a question. For those of you in the room who identify yourselves as Christians, what would you say your number one problem is? Just what's your number one Christian problem? If there's some of you in the room that that don't identify yourselves as Christians, I'd ask the same question for you. What what do you think probably your, your number one, your biggest problem is? Well, for both groups, I'll just I'll ask the same question. Okay, well, what do y'all think the number one problem at ASU is? I'll tell you that the Bible doesn't answer it in a way that you may think. It's kind of counterintuitive because the Bible doesn't say that our biggest problem is a sin problem. Our biggest problem is a worship problem. The reason why we sin in the ways that we do, the reason why we can't rest, the reason why we are driven by fear, the reason why we're addicted to what we are addicted to, finds its root in a deeper worship problem. And so I want to try, I want to, try to show you what I mean by that more as we kind of explore Psalm 63 together. So I'll read it. You can follow along. And um, I'll remind you that this is God's word for us. And it is uh, absolutely true. And it is given for our good. So I'll begin. Psalm 63. A psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. And all who swear by God's name will praise him while the mouths of of liars will be silenced. If you would, just pray with me for a minute before we consider this passage together, okay? So let's pray. Father, as we um, turn our attention to this passage, we really need you to teach us. Father, we come in here uh, as, as Patrick just kind of led us in prayer uh, with, with hearts that are frosty and cold and icy. And uh, we need you to come and to melt the ice away and to teach us. And so would you do that by your Holy Spirit? And we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk about this idea of worship in terms of, of, of four things. I want us to explore four things together about worship tonight. We're just going to go through these one at a time, all right? 
The first thing that I want you to see from this psalm is that worship is driven by beauty. Worship is driven by beauty. If you look again at sort of the context of this, it says at the, the little subscript at the top that it's written by David, King David. He's in a terrible situation. He's in the wilderness, which means he's in the desert. He's without food or without water. He's being hunted by assassins. And uh, he's surrounded by wild animals. There are no walls for him to find protection around. It's a crappy situation for David. But, but look at what he does. Uh, if you look again at verse 1, he begins by saying, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Now if I were David, my prayer would look something like, God, can you please get me out of this situation? Provide some food, some water. Get me out of here, please. Can you fix this? I don't like this. Can you do something about it? Now, all, you know, that's a very biblical and that right prayer to pray, but that's not exactly what David prays. He prays, God, I want you. Why? Because he has found God himself to be so beautiful and so compelling that that's all he really wants. That's all that he really needs. And here's the thing. Christians don't just find God to be useful. Christians are the only people that find God to be beautiful. I mean, anybody can find God to be useful. You know, I want God to make me happy. I want God to give me more money. I want God to give me something. I want God to fix my life. Everybody, find God, everybody finds God useful. Only Christians find him beautiful. Now, here's the thing. And this is what we learn about worship is that you are always worshiping that which you find the most beautiful, that which you find the most compelling, that which you find the most attractive, that is what your heart is always going to be worshiping. Now, my time at, at App so far, I have discovered that, that students who walk away from the faith, maybe the faith that they grew up in, if they grew up in church, don't do so primarily on intellectual grounds. They walk away from the faith because Jesus becomes boring and church becomes boring. And other things just become a lot more attractive. And so as Eric said at the beginning, yeah, we, we are one week into school. And if you have not felt the social pressure yet, you will. Just give it time. I mean, for, for those of you who have sort of the right biblical data in your head, uh, you will uh, be confronted with things that are more attractive and more compelling to you than Jesus might be. And so the party scene is going to be attractive, and so some of you may find yourself sort of gravitating towards that. Even though you kind of sign off on that which is biblically true, you may be drawn to messing around with your boyfriend or girlfriend, just sort of randomly hooking up that sort of lifestyle may be more attractive to you than Jesus is. Or for some of you, you, you think, if, if I can just get a man or a guy to desire me, I will do whatever it takes. What, what, whatever, how much I have to diet, whatever foods I have to give up, I will do that in order to get this. And just sort of that lifestyle would become more attractive to you than Jesus will. And no doubt, all these students who sort of gradually walk away from following Jesus would say that they are Christians, would say that the Bible is true. They would sort of you know, sign off on that. I believe that's true. But it's just not... It just doesn't matter to them. Sort of like my relationship with the Pythagorean theorem. You know, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. I, I think that is true. I, I believe that. I sign off on that. I don't really think about it all that much, though. You know, as my, as my day goes, day in and day out, I'm, I don't... And I hope this isn't you either. Uh, that sort of gravitates back and forth to the Pythagorean theorem. But that's, but that's the way that it works for some of us. Is that, you know, we can sign off. The Bible is true. I believe, yeah, there's a God. The Bible's right. 
And yet your life exposes the fact that Jesus doesn't matter. Something else has captured your heart. And that's the first thing that I want you to see about worship. Worship is always driven by that which you find the most beautiful. It's the heart that sort of drives worship. But how does this get fleshed out in real life? This is sort of the second thing that I want you to see. The second thing I want you to see about worship is that worship is holistic. It is holistic. Look at some of these verses with me. It says in verse 1 that his soul is engaged. It says, verse 1, my soul thirsts for you. In verse 5, it says, my soul will be satisfied. His heart is engaged. If you look in verse 1, it says, earnestly I seek you. Earnestly is just a, is just a word for from the heart. His body is engaged. Again, verse 1, my body longs for you. His voice is engaged. Verse 3, my lips will glorify you. Verse 5, with singing lips I will praise you. Verse 7, I sing in the shadow of your wings. His mind is engaged. If you look at verse 6, it says, On my bed I remember you, I think of you through the watches of the night. And here's what you have to see. He is worshiping God with his emotions, with his intellect, with his will, with his body, with his voice, with sort of everything that he has. He is holistically worshiping. And that's because that's what worship is. It it involves your entire being. So if you would, uh, picture with me sort of three stick figures up here on the stage. Little stick figures. And this one over here has this like enormous head. So it's like a walking candied apple over here. And then here you have one with, with an enormous heart and like little stick figure legs and hands and a little head sticking out top of this enormous heart. And over here you have a stick figure with like massive hands, like base, enormous baseball glove hands and a little stick figure body. You know, you can basically filter everybody's personality in this room into kind of one of these templates of being kind of driven by the mind or driven by the heart or driven by activity. And so what what I want to do is just sort of think through the implications of what it means that worship is holistic in light of what your personality temperament may be. Okay, so let's first look at the the big heart people. If this, is, if this is you, the danger for you is to equate music with worship. Worship begins for you like when the first guitar chord gets strummed or when the first you know, chord on the organ gets cranked up for some of you. That's, that's, what, that's when worship begins for you. And, and the temptation for you is not to worship God for who he is and in response to his mercy, but the temptation for you is to worship your worship. Where it's like, I'm trying to stir up these emotions, I'm trying to stir up something emotionally, and if that happens, if my emotions are activated, then worship was electric, worship was awesome, and you leave feeling great, but, but if you come to a campus ministry, if you come to a church, and your heart isn't jazzed up by the music, then you'll walk away saying, oh, I just didn't really get anything out of it. Speaking was okay, but the music was kind of, the worship, praise and worship was kind of lame. And here's what you have to see. If this is you, you have to see worship is holistic. It is holistic. It is more than just your emotions. Let's look at the the big head people, the candy apple people. If this is you, the danger for you is to equate truth with worship, to equate theology with worship. Where, you know, uh, worship begins and ends when somebody is thinking rightly, when they're signing off on the correct doctrinal propositions. And so the temptation for you is not to worship God for who he is and in response to his mercy, but to worship ideas. And God sort of gets reduced to cognitive concepts. 
And you get really jazzed up about apologetics and theology and politics because real Christians are those who think. You get real jazzed up about debate and kind of wanting to kick around ideas the whole time. But here's what you have to see. If this is you, you have to see that worship is holistic. It is more than just your intellect. But what about the big hand people over here? The doers, the activists. Really, the, the danger for you is to equate activity with worship. You know, worship is not found in a song or in a book. It is found when you give a hot meal to somebody who's hungry. It, it, it is found when you share the gospel with someone who is lost. And so the danger for you is not to, or the temptation for you, is, is not to worship God for who he is and in response to his mercy, but the temptation is really to worship yourself where your life really just becomes about your schedule, your activities, your agenda. It, you know, when, when, you, when you begin to think, you know, real Christians are the ones that do justice. Real Christians are the ones that do evangelism. Real Christians are the ones that do something. Let's get out there and do something. I'm not into all this touchy-filly music, community, get into each other's lives kind of stuff. Let's go do something. If this is you, you have to see worship is holistic. It is not just about activity. Now, of course... My point is this. Worship absolutely involves the intellect in your mind. Worship absolutely involves your emotions and your emotional life. And worship absolutely involves activity and going out there and doing something. But we have to put all these pieces together because this is what it looks like to be a human. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. It involves your entire existence. That's the second thing I want you to see about worship. That it is holistic. Here's the third thing, and it's kind of connected to that. Worship is constant. That is to say that worship is not determined by circumstances. Again, if you look at the situation David is in, again, in the little subscript, it says that he is in the wilderness. He's in the desert. Some of your translations say wilderness, but don't picture like Appalachian Trail out in the, you know, the forest wilderness. He's in a Middle Eastern desert which is nothing but like jagged rocks and dirt. It's boiling hot in the day, freezing cold at night, wild animals everywhere, no food, no water. Terrible. It says in verse 6 that he's, he's on his bed. Now, if you're picturing in your mind, like, he's, on some, he, he's, like, he's got some sweet gear from foot sloggers and he's out, he's out there. No, I mean, he's, he's like on blanket. It's like blanket and ground. That's his bed. And he's got a rock for a pillow probably. Not comfortable. Now, why is he awake in, during the watches of the night? If you look in verse 6. It's because people are hunting him. People are trying to kill him. And so he's with a group of men and they sort of have these night watches where they take turns kind of guarding the camp because people will stealthily creep up and try to slit their throat in the middle of the night. It's a terrible situation. And for a lot of us in this room, we will probably never experience what he's going through. And I hope that you don't. But here's what, you, here's what is, you have to see. In the middle of this context, he is still worshiping God. He is still worshiping him. And um, if you only worship God during the good times, and when the bad times hit, you sort of just get angry at God and throw up the middle finger at God and peace out on him and say, I want nothing to do with you. What you are doing in those moments are just revealing the fact that you do not want him. You just want what he can give you. You don't find him beautiful. You just find him useful. And when he's not useful to you anymore, you have no use for him. 
Do a thought experiment with me. Let's just say that you inherited like millions of dollars. Your, your grandparents were these secret oil tycoons and I don't know why they'd be secret. They were, they were oil tycoons you didn't know about. And you, you came into this massive inheritance, didn't know about. Good day for you. And um, as you go along, you, you eventually meet this person that you're really attracted to and really drawn to, and y'all begin dating and eventually get married. Although the first few years of your marriage are kind of turbulent, and, and it's escalating more and more, fights more and more, and about two years into this marriage, your spouse is getting ready to leave you forever. And right before they slam the door on you and walk out of your life, they look at you and they say, you know what? I never loved you at all. I only got into this relationship for the money. And when I realized I couldn't get my hands on it, I'm out. Slam the door. Leave. Now, how would that make you feel? Feel I'm used. They didn't really want me. They just want my money. Do you realize that this is probably how God feels a lot of the time? Because theoretically, God has this like treasure chest of blessing where he can give us the good life. He can give us uh, you know, an attractive spouse with a great marriage. He can give us safety. He can give us security. And when we experience hard things in our lives, if our reaction is, forget this, forget him, we are just like that greedy spouse that says, if I can't get my hands on that treasure chest of blessing, I don't want anything to do with you. We find them useful, but not beautiful. But actually, the flip side is probably more accurate for most of the people in this room, where we only come to God in crisis. Where when when the wheels are coming off, that's when we come to God. That's when we feel like we need to start reading the Bible and going to church, going to campus ministries, and kind of praying again. And here's what this is like. You know, my wife and I have a, a little 11-month-old uh, daughter. And um, I was with her all day. And during her naps, what happens is when I put her in her crib and she's asleep, you're in a weird spot because you've got to get out of the room, but you have to do it like a ninja. There's, there's obstacles in the way. There's toys. And if you step on anything and she wakes up, the whole thing's over and your, you know, your day just got worse. So I put her in there and you, know, you have to stealthily walk to the door and get to the door. And as you're closing it behind you, it's like, squeaking. You're just like, I hate this door. So thankfully, I have uh, some WD-40 under my little kitchen sink and uh, take that little bottle, spray the hinges, and now work it back and forth, twerk it back and forth, and it doesn't, um, doesn't squeak at all. Put the can back up, never think about WD-40 again. And this is the way that a lot of us relate to God. Wheels come off, things get messed up. Oh, let's go get God, pray to him. I got to get involved, I got to do something. Things start smoothing out in your life again and God gets shelved until you need him again. And that's not worship. That, that is, God is useful, but God is not beautiful yet to you. So here's the last thing I want you to see. Worship, you know, worship is uh, driven by beauty. Worship is holistic. Worship is constant. And then here's the last thing. Worship is about making God look good. Worship is about making God look good. And you would think this is kind of obvious, but it's not. It's not. Look at this passage again. Look at how honest David is. In verse 1, he says, My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. This is him saying, I am empty on the inside and I am spiritually dehydrated. 
Verse 7, he says, you are my help. That is him saying, I am needy and I need help and I have found it in God. Verse 8, he says, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. And this is him saying, look, I'm falling and and I need your hand to uphold me and to put me back together again. David is admitting permanently for eternity in Scripture, this will always be here, him admitting how weak and needy and sinful and broken he is as a person. His life is not about making him look good. His life is about making God look good. And so many of us are confused into thinking that Christianity, Christian maturity, is getting to a place where you need Jesus less. So many of us believe the lie that Christian maturity is getting to a point where you need Jesus less and less. And it's not true. You know, I was, I was uh, this, last year on campus, I, you know, I meet with students all the time, uh, one-on-one over coffee or lunch or whatever, and it just so happened that I had these two appointments back-to-back. And the first appointment that I had was with this um, uh, student who was telling me about his life and how awesome things were and how on fire he was and how he had these big plans to kind of win the campus. And then right after that, I went into this uh, second appointment with this, uh, another student who was telling me all about how he was still struggling with his porn addiction and he still needs Jesus and Jesus has been sweet to him, but, but he's, he's still screwing up and uh, that he's kind of falling apart. Now, you put these two stories back together, back, back to back. The first person thinks that he is spiritually mature, and he's not. He, he, because our conversation was basically about him. He, he, he was not in touch with his need at all. I don't even think he mentioned Jesus. It was just about him and what he's doing, what he's excited about, and blah, 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 blah. And none of those things were wrong in and of himself. He was just desperately out of touch with how desperate he was. The second guy was spiritually mature, and yet would probably tell you he's, he feels very spiritually immature. And throughout our whole conversation, he was very honest about how needy and about how broken he was and how much he needed Jesus. And that is the point. In those conversations, the first guy looked great and Jesus was irrelevant. He didn't need Jesus. In the second conversation, the guy looked broken and poor and he was clinging onto Jesus with everything that he had and that made Jesus look amazing. And that is the picture. What we have to do is, is that it, it, we have to start believing and thinking the implications of the gospel. If you think going to church or going to a campus ministry is just where nice people get together to learn instruction on how to be better people, you've missed sort of the whole point. This is not about us. As, as uh, Eric said at the beginning, this is not about us. This is about King Jesus. And so what that means is that we have to begin developing a vocabulary and a habit of admitting that which is true about us even when it's ugly. And we have to quit the nonsense of this competition of trying to over-spiritualize, one-up each other. You know, God threw a grenade in my soul this summer. And I realized how much of my life is driven by fear. Where where if I look at my job, I I got to a place where I realized about 95% of my job, I don't really know what I'm doing. And I'm so afraid of somebody actually finding that out. That just makes me work really hard so that nobody could find that out about me. That I really don't know what I'm doing half the time or 95% of the time. 
Now the thing is, is that you're, you're driven by fear a lot more than you'd like to admit as well. I mean, have you ever had the thought, which is, you know, what would people say if they knew this about me? What would people think if they knew that this is what I was struggling with? I'm supposed to be a Christian. I'm supposed to be a leader. I'm going to jeopardize my witness if these people find out what I'm really struggling with. And we are driven by fear. But what you have to realize is that when you identify yourself as the term Christian, when you put that label on you, what that says about you is that it took no less than God to pay for your sin. Your sin was so massive that it took no less than someone with infinite power to pay for it. Which says what about us? That we are massive train wrecks. And when we begin to start admitting that, that we are desperately sinful, are weak, we are fearful, we are messed up. All of the props that we could use to justify ourselves get kicked out from under us. And we have no place else to fall but unto King Jesus. And he becomes our Savior. Because that's what he is. Now let me wrap up with this. Because uh, if you're anything like me, when, when you start to kind of pile up this stuff of what worship is supposed to be, you start kind of burying under the weight of, okay, well, how am I supposed to do this? How do I get the power to worship like this? And here is how. You keep your eyes focused on Jesus crucified. That, that is to say, you keep your eyes on the cross. Because what happens is when, is when the cross looks at you, it communicates two things simultaneously. It communicates to you on the, on the front end that you are a sinner. And that means that that crushes your pride. And simultaneously, it exposes you to how beautiful and marvelous and glorious his love for you is to give up his son in order to get you. And what that does is that builds you up. And so, and so in that moment, you are simultaneously being deconstructed and reconstructed when you focus your eyes on the cross. When you begin to believe, not with your head, but into your heart and out into your bloodstream, that you are so bad that Jesus had to die for you, but yet that you are so loved that Jesus was glad to die for you. When you put those two things together, the gospel of grace begins to change you. It begins to transform you. And what ends up happening? God starts becoming beautiful and not just useful. You find him attractive just for who he is. And then what happens is that you want to respond to him with everything that you are holistically, not just your mind, not just your heart, not just your hands, but everything that you are because that's what, what a response of this sort of grace would do. And then thirdly, what happens is, is that you would start to see through all of your circumstances through the lens of the cross. Where even when you experience hardships and suffering and pain, you look through it through the lens of the cross and say, okay, this can't be God's punishing me. This can't be because God's angry with me. This is because of some other reason. But we know that it's because God is still for us. He gave up his son in order to get me. This can't be because he's, he's, he's throwing the whole plan out now. And then lastly, what begins to happen as you get the gospel of grace, as you start talking more and more about him and how beautiful and amazing he is, you start talking less and less about yourself. And that's the point. And so the invitation for you tonight, and really the invitation for you this whole year, is to keep your eyes focused and fixed on the cross of Jesus. And in response to his grace and in response to his mercy, worship. That's the invitation. Pray with me. Father, I would ask that you would, in your mercy and in your kindness, give us eyes of faith. Give us hearts that are soft. Give us hearts that are sensitive. 
where, where we would not be hardened to the grace of the gospel, but we would be softened by it. And as a result, it, it would not just be cognitive categories. It would not just be emotional surges. It would not just be uh, guilt to do something else. But, Father, I pray that it would get into our souls and transform us from the inside out and make us people that are humble and yet confident, um, uh, despairing of ourselves and yet absolutely confident in you. People who are quick to admit how uh, needy we are and simultaneously how great of a Savior that we have. Would you do that for us as we begin this semester? Fix our eyes afresh on the gospel of grace. And to that end, we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen.